What's up, world? I'm your host, Angelica Beener, and welcome to Milestones, a new podcast where my special guests and I discuss landmark albums that are in a milestone year. This is a really special episode for me. This is a different kind of episode. The milestone for this show is Class of 1996. That's right. This month marks my 25th anniversary from LaGuardia High School of Music and Art and Performing Arts in New York City. And so for this episode, I am joined by three very special high school alum as my esteemed guests, and I'm super pleased and honored to introduce each of them to you. My first special guest is a two-time Grammy-winning multi-instrumentalist who I first met at just 13 years old. He is an incredible and highly sought after saxophonist, vocoderist, keyboardist, producer, and songwriter hailing from South Jamaica, Queens, New York. He learned uh, through jazz royalty like Barry Harris and Dr. Billy Taylor, as well as Jamaica greats Marcus Miller, Tom Brown, Bernard Wright, and the late Weldon Irvine. And speaking of Irvine, you can find Benjamin making an appearance in the 2019 award-winning documentary, Digging for Weldon Irvine. From Betty Carter to Stefan Harris to the late great Roy Hargrove, from Nas to Kendrick Lamar to Q-Tip to Kanye West to Buster Rhymes, from Anderson Pack to John Legend, Lady Gaga and Beyonce, and Black Rock Coalition gurus Vernon Reed and Melvin, Melvin Gibbs, he has collaborated among distinguished peers and so many of our heroes while, while, creating a legacy in his own right as one of the most inventive and unique musicians of his generation. He has literally helped define the sound of modern instrumental music today, influencing cultural taste, aesthetics, and stretching sonic possibilities. Please welcome the prodigious Casey Benjamin to the show. Yay! Yeah! My next guest is a platinum producer, songwriter, and musician from Usher to Music Soul Child to Ghostface to 50 Cent, Jasmine Sullivan, P. Diddy, Jada Kiss, 112, Yolanda Adams, Mary J. Blige, Carl Thomas, Dave Hollister, Kelly Price, and Montel Jordan for whom he scored a number one hit. He has earned veteran status after 25 years of collaboration with many of the most important artists of his generation. In 2018, his song, You, for breakout singer Nicole Buss spent a whopping 22 weeks on the Billboard charts. He hosts and produces Wow TL Cross, a show that covers all genres of music through the art of storytelling. And let me tell you, no one tells a story like this guest. In this series, he delves into the connectivity between artists, their songs, events, and even their origin neighborhoods. This show, through his unique storytelling, explores the history behind musical game changers, the dots that connect them all, and the music that has become the soundtrack to our lives. Guests have included Chuck D of Public Enemy, Daryl DMC McDaniels of Run DMC, 
Jimmy Jam, Will I Am, Cheryl Salt James, and Kenny the Jet Smith of NBA Inside Edition. Please give a warm welcome to the incomparable T.L. Cross. Yeah. yeah. My next guest is an architect of inspirational experiences. His proven track record of motivating inner city youth through the lens of sports and performing arts is one that includes over 20 years of experiential marketing and strategic planning. With his creative and innovative approach, he has also made a name for himself at labels like Motown and Atlantic Records, working in promotions and product management. His event marketing collaborations include brands like Nike, Jordan Brand, and Converse, as he managed operations for the late great Kobe Bryant's Mamba League, LeBron James, Kevin Durant, Dwayne Wade, the list goes on. Appearing in countless off-Broadway productions, he then founded the dramatic arts program Monologue in 2011 a winner of the 2000 ASCAP Songwriters Award. He is currently a consulting video producer and director at E1 Music. Please give it up for the multi-talented, brilliant Drago Moore. Yay! <laughs> so uh, first of all, guys, happy anniversary. Happy 25th anniversary. Hey, so TL Cross rocking the fame shirt, you know. I used, I, I used to have a uh I used to have a stadium jacket fame and I lost it on tour. Oh no. I hate, it. I hate myself for it. Oh yeah, man. Dope shirt, know, man. My mom used to have like all these cast jackets, including Beat Street. She had a Beat Street jacket back in the day. But she lost all of those those jackets. But Drago's got the LaGuardia hoodie on, you know. Casey got the 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 Grammy apparel here. You know what I mean? So wow, amazing, amazing. So you know, we all you know we rep, and I think that more importantly than the, more important than the institution that we found each other at, for me, what's most special is finding you all at that institution. That's what I carry with me more than anything. So yeah, we met. So uh, Dre was a, a, a vocal major, Cross was a vocal major, and I was a vocal major. And the way the school was set up was that it, the majors were divided by floors. So Casey and you know Carlos Enriquez and you know some of the guys that I knew they were down in the basement I had theory in the basement but that was the only time I went down there so our interaction would become yeah when Casey you were working with the vocal department particularly also gospel chorus and rising stars and all this kind of stuff um and actually my audition song for LaGuardia is from a soundtrack which was Annie I did maybe for my for my audition. Cross, do you remember what you auditioned to, to get in? I absolutely do. Um, it's just a funny story. So when I could hear the other kids auditioning, I could hear them. And, and they would say, this is from the, this is from the so-and-so play, the scene where so-and-so and so-and-so, and then they would go into it. 
And I'm like, I don't have anything like that. And I heard a couple of students go in there and say, this, you know, I will be singing, you know, <laughs> and it was just so formal and they were able to break it down. So they asked me, they said, uh, you know, what are you gonna be singing? And I said, I will be singing the remake of It's So Hard to Say Goodbye by Boys to Men, which comes from Cooley High, the scene where Coach Cheeks had been killed. <laughs> oh! <laughs> yes, to get the soundtrack. Yeah, I didn't know. I didn't. I, I thought I had to phrase it a certain way. <laughs> That's how I phrased it. Amazing, amazing story, Drago. Do you remember the song that you performed to get into the school? Not only do I remember the song, but I believe at one point, Angelica, you worked in the admissions department in the school. I did, and you were able to see people's scores. I was, uh, yes. <laughs> yes, wow. I, yes, I was I was going around telling my friends their admission score, like you got an 89 or you got a this or you got it. Cause I was working in the records department, you know, during, wow. I didn't want to, I, I didn't do a lunch break. I was kind of a nerd. So I would go to the records department and work there and Dre got a 98. Oh, but, oh the, wow. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Yo, yo, yo don't be shocked, don't be shocked. <laughs> Nothing to see here. Nothing to see here. <laughs> and what did you perform? Do you remember? I do. So, <laughs> yo, the, the year before I had been in doing like these like kitty Motown review things and off-Broadway stuff. So I sung The Temptations, My Girl. Nice. The Jackson 5 version. Aha, <laughs> uh-huh. okay. <laughs> it's, it's acapella though. So it's, you know, the melody is, is pretty much the same. Obviously, if you're listening to the, the production on both are different. But um, I remember because I, I actually had a vocal coach the day before the audition, or two days before, and he, he told me what key it was in. So for, for those who I mean, you know, Cross knows, you've been still with me. Like for me to remember my, my, my pitch when I'm singing a cappella was extremely challenging. Like, because if I start off a half step higher or a half step lower, you know, you just kind of come in, your nerves are bad. Yeah. And at the audition, if there's a piano, ask them to play this particular chord or, right. or, or this start note, right? You can play the start note. Right. If I had that note, I could never go wrong in that song. I, I, but I had to hear that note because it was <laughs> ah, or like, you know, he started the whole thing. I have stuff. Right, right, right. And, and then I'm trying to jump to the, the right notes. Like, yo, yo, you here? It's like, yo, I'm trying to get here. And then it sounds crazy. So um, yeah, I, that's what I sung. And um, you know, I got to meet all of you wonderful people from, from that one song. So that, that song holds near and dear to my heart. Now, oh, I can't wow. sing it now. No, my voice was <laughs> but but at a, it was a time. It was a time. <laughs> it was a time. You know what was funny? I picked uh, Annie's Maybe, a- Maybe from the Annie soundtrack, particularly because it had so many changes. I was like, I just knew. I was like, it's gonna go here, it's gonna go here, it's gonna go there. I know I'm gonna kill him with this, you know, because there was no accompaniment. So even, I, it's funny, I was singing it today, getting ready to talk to you guys like, oh, and then I, I remembered the first two modulations or the first two key changes. And then I could not remember how to get back for the third one. I was like, damn, Jelly, you did that. You know what I mean? So that was the song that I that I chose, particularly for that reason. I wanted them to see that I could move around. You know what I'm saying, Casey? For kids at that time, I know a lot of young people that sung that song. 
yo, that song will hang you. It's like, hard. It sounds sweet and simple. Get lost on a note. You'll Get be- lost, and you will not find your way back. Facts, facts. It's a, it's a, it's a tough song to sing a cappella. It's, it's got a lot of interesting twists and turns. Well, you know, I um, I have my keyboard here, so I don't know if I don't know how you feeling, Angelica, but. Uh- oh! <laughs> No, 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 no. But you know, when I was 13, <laughs> I know, right? Casey Benjamin, do you remember the song you played or what you had to do? So was it for instrumental majors? What was the process for auditioning? I actually don't know what that process was. So you had to do uh you had to come, you had to play a piece, and you also had a sight read. Oh. I think you had I think, did you have to sight sing something? I can't remember if you had to sight sing, but you had to have a piece and then put in and sight read. So I played, um, I don't know if you guys have heard of this band, Spyro Gyro. Yeah. Like, oh, wow. So I had this song called Shake a Song. So I played that. And then I had a sight read something that was, it, it was a waltz in three, four. And I played it. I was like, yeah, I'm going to kill this. I played it and I played it perfectly, I thought. And then Mr. Jaffe, he was the, uh, the teacher. He was like, very good, but uh, you did something wrong. You know what it is? And I'm like, and right there, I'm like, I'm like super nervous. Like, oh man, I, I know I screwed this up. I'm looking at the paper, I'm like, I didn't read the key change, the, uh, the, the key. I played it in C major, it's in C minor. Got it. So then I played it again and it was, he was like, okay, you did it great. So, but oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's how that's that's how it is. Amazing. Thank you guys so much for being here. You know, you are all my brothers, and I'm beyond thrilled to uh, to have you guys on today uh, and commemorating our time together in this way. So, for everyone tuning in, it's not just our high school anniversary, but it's also Black Music Month. So, I assembled these incredible minds to get to together to do what we used to do and you know many of us still do which is talk about music and for black music month we decided to tackle one of my favorite subjects which is the soundtrack so today we'll be discussing uh what we consider to be some of the greatest movie soundtracks of our time and so you know to set this up and contextualize you know this is a really broad topic Uh, It should be stated that our generation grew up in an era when the soundtrack was literally everything. The soundtrack was a big deal. And so I'd love to start by asking each of you, when did the concept of a soundtrack come into your conscious understanding? Like, Do you remember the first soundtrack that really just sort of grabbed you? You know what? Interestingly enough, okay, really early on... um, I was really into, as a kid, I discovered the the voice of little Michael Jackson and I was a Jackson 5 fanatic and still am. And uh, somehow or another, my parents would buy me records. And one of the records that they bought me was The Wiz. And uh, it was the first time that I un- at least understood <laughs> that I could listen to the music, uh, you know, as, as it pertains to a particular piece without watching it at the same time. You know, uh, that was the first time I understood that. Um, And then when it became like, this is the soundtrack of so-and-so, I think for me, it was probably in the 80s with stuff like Top Gun and Take My Breath Away or, you know, that kind of thing. It was probably the 80s, you know, uh, 
was when that came, that concept, you know, became clear to me. Yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. That was Berlin, right? Yes. yes. And you know, the funny thing about that was that, <laughs> you know, if you asked me to name another Berlin song, I couldn't do it. And that, Nobody. Was, <laughs> and that was what was so amazing about soundtracks was that they introduced you to artists that you would have never otherwise, you know, known of. And maybe that might've been their only hit too. Casey, what about you? When was your, what was the first sort of soundtrack that came into your consciousness? It's kind of similar to TL Cross as, as so it's like the, the soundtracks that I, I grew to love and from the seventies, I didn't really start to check them out till later on, maybe till like the late eighties into the nineties. Mm -hmm. So like, <clears throat> Soundtracks from the seventies that that resonate with me are Claudine, um, Mahogany, Saturday Night Fever. Those are like the three that really resonate with me. And then going into the eighties, like The Breakfast Club, you know, The Rat Pack, all those type of movies, really kind of it's like, oh, this is this is what it's like, you know, soundtrack, you know. And then obviously going into the nineties, you know, Moment of Blues and Dead Prez and Love Jones and all those type of soundtracks so yeah dre what was one of the first soundtracks you remember hearing very like as early as you can go back yeah i think i think similar to cross um the wiz was was a uh, uh an early memory of of putting the vinyl on it had multiple albums and you know some of the albums actually had words from the film so you would hear um, some of them were just um, music scores, if you will, just kind of selections and bodies of music. As a kid, it's just like, okay, so I want to get to You Can't Win. You know what I mean? And then you're like searching for the songs that you like. I think um, for me, I had more of a musical theater background. Mm -hmm. So I was very used to hearing musicals on, like recorded musicals. I, I think the first one, um, it's funny, uh, Cross mentioned The Wiz and Michael Jackson. The first thing that I was conscious of, not really the whole soundtrack idea, but flashing back, like, like uh, KC said, I knew that Michael Jackson had done a song called Ben. And, and I knew that that was from a movie with rats. That's kind of all, you know. <laughs> um, and, and, then, and then, of course, later, I had the soundtrack of, of that you know, studio album that Michael recorded. Um, they had like, you know, In Our Small Way on there and uh, People Make the World Go Round, which was, I mean, you know, I'm sure I'm sure across the- Ballistics. Right, right, right. So that was, I associated Michael Jackson doing something separate. Um, but, I, but I would probably say Purple Rain was the first thing, I think that was 84-ish, 84. -ish, 80, yep. 84. Okay, okay. Right, see, I got the scholars on here. Um, that was the first thing that I, that, that I heard sonically that had a movie attached and then the album was in the house and there were like bad characters and good characters and it was like, ooh, and then there was a soundtrack. So probably as a you know, six-year-old, that was probably the first thing in my lifetime because The Wiz kind of came out before I was you know talking, but Purple Rain was the first thing that I connected to, like this is a soundtrack of this movie. You know, it's so interesting that you say that because well, you brought up a, a lot of really great points. One, I totally forgot 
that Ben, I forgot about Ben. So I forgot about Ben. I forgot about that film. I don't even know the name of the film, but of course, like that's one of the quintessential soundtracks that, yeah, absolutely. And then based on what you just said, I stand corrected in what I thought mine was going to be because I think I share that with you, Dre. I think Purple Rain is the first soundtrack that I was aware was a soundtrack. It's, it's, a, it's a tie and you know, my mind to go back that far, I might have the months a little off or something like that. So what I was going to say was Sparkle because that movie was, you know, I had older siblings, older cousins and, you know, Lynette McKee and Irene Cara, you know, um, they, they, you know, they were just it. They were everything, you know. And, and exactly, TL. And then like, you know, a young Philip Michael Thomas, because we knew him from Miami Vice. It was like, yo, look at Philip Michael Thomas. <laughs> right, you, know? Right. <laughs> you know, and so that soundtrack, everybody was learning the moves. You know, I still remember all the choreography and everything. And that was one of the first soundtracks because in my house, Aretha was it. Like, you know, it was like Ray Charles, Aretha Franklin, 24 seven, if you let, if you let it be. And so it was interesting because, you know, you had Irene Karen, Lynette McKee, and oh, forgive me. I don't remember the third sister's name. Great actor though. She was, she was great in that film as well. And, but hearing Aretha sing all those songs, jump, you know, giving him something he can feel, you know, that was part of, that was the biggest part of my upbringing, but Dre, I'm not sure which one was first. They're very, very close. And then I would say the last one was, I had the Star Wars soundtrack on vinyl in my house. <laughs> you know, we had, <laughs> we had Star Wars in the house for whatever yeah. reason. Yeah. The, 80s, the 80s was so random until like, I, I, I get it. <laughs> you know, like it was just like, you know, and, and you know, Billy D. Williams was in the cover and, you know, all, right. all that kind of stuff. Also, and, um, also breaking. Ooh. Yes. 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 Absolutely. That's Shaka Khan. Yeah. Oh, was that? Was that? I feel for you. No. Um. Can't nobody. Oh, ain't nobody. Yeah. Ain't nobody is on the breaking soundtrack. I did not realize that. Whoa. And then, um, no, no stopping us. No stopping us. <laughs> 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 but you know what? Let me can I piggyback off of that purple rain? Absolutely. Let me tell you what's crazy about that. And I'm glad that you brought that up, Dre. And you know, you talked about Angelica because the thing that's crazy about it is, well, I speak for myself. I forget sometimes that that was a soundtrack. For me, that's like a perfect album, right? So it's almost like you know how like a soundtrack can sometimes sound like almost compilation-ish, just different. That was such a perfect album you mm. know what i'm saying and, and then at the same time yes it was the soundtrack to the film of the same name and it's like i literally had those two in different parts of my brain although i knew it's the soundtrack that's a great that's a great yeah man purple rain oh my god that's that's like one of the goats of the 80s 80s soundtracks period exactly no, period. i think with purple rain why that movie and that soundtrack resonates with us so much 
subconscious because it was the first time where it was a major picture that had black characters. Um, and obviously it, it was commercial and it crossed over, but for, for us and, you know, the black community, it was like, wow, you know, to see, to see that. You know. I totally agree with you on that. It's for our generation, for sure. I mean, Prince was everything in the 80s and that soundtrack like you like you all have said it it almost doesn't feel like it's a soundtrack it's just it's not only one of the greatest soundtracks of all time in my opinion as cliche as it might sound to me it's prince's best album as well now that can that's debatable you know but it's 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 absolutely to, for me like one of his his greatest works Absolutely. Oh man! I, th I think he won it, didn't he? Win? He won an Oscar. He won an Oscar for that. He either yeah. won or was nominated. You're right. There was something with you. Might be right about that. Yep. Absolutely. If, yeah. mm -hmm. if it wasn't his greatest body of work, it definitely was probably the most impactful project during a particular era, because that was a, a huge game changer both in film and cinema, but also, you know, you know, musically as well. Like, it shifted how things sounded past that point 100 percent. and and to 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 you know to add to what you're saying there dre and you know by no means am i a film history expert um but you know we celebrate and i think rightfully so hans zimmer james horn john williams you know nelson riddle all of these and amazing you know somebody brought up uh, breakfast at tiffany's and you know, all, all of these amazing films, but we have to talk about Curtis Mayfield and Prince and Terrence Blanchard. You know what I mean? We have to talk, and Spike Lee. We have to talk about these people as well, Bill Lee, you know, because I think when we think about the black soundtrack, especially the, the black American soundtrack, we're not just celebrating the, the, the work, the, the music, but we're celebrating the doors that were being broken down in Hollywood, which is what I think Casey, you were getting at and, and Dre, what you guys, what you all were getting at. So that's really, really, um, I think a point we need to make as well. Yeah, to, to touch on that, I was gonna say, man, cause Curtis Mayfield, you know, and uh, you mentioned him and mentioning Blanchard and Prince, you know, Curtis Mayfield, I think about, I think about Sparkle, mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? You know, you know his, his writing and production, you know, with that out, you know, with that album and in soundtrack, and I think about, um, of course, Superfly. You know, his, you know, I think about them. You know, and I also think about Let's Do It Again. You know, and yeah, I think about Let's Do It Again, and you know, quite a, 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 um, a Claudine actually. Claudine. You know, you meant to Claudine. Um, did he do a set? Who did a Saturday night uh, Uptown Saturday night. Night. Fever? No, no, Uptown Saturday Night. Oh, I don't know. See, that's a good question. That, oh, that might have been. That might have been. I know he did um, a piece of the action. He's that, and let's do it again. Yeah. And let's do it again. Mm -hmm. So he very well may have. I'm not sure. Yeah. He, he, and then Blanchett, you mentioned Terrence Blanchett. I mean, that's that, that, like, I was listening to a song by Terrence Blanchett called Over There. A oh, man. Beautiful song. Yes, a shout out to Derek Hodge as well, who composed that tune. Oh, Terrence, well, we're, we're gonna get to we're gonna get to Spike in a second. Um, I, oh, yeah, I, yeah, wanna, yeah. I wanna circle back to Curtis Mayfield for just a second if we can, just to sort of really 
talk about his genius. And I have a, I have a confession for you guys. I have never seen Superfly. You look at Dre. So one, one, one of my guests has left the building. He's like, I'm but out. I have never seen Superfly. And, but I bring that up to say this. There are certain soundtracks that are so brilliant that they literally overshadow the film. And for me, I've never had just, I've never had an interest in seeing Superfly, but when, but the soundtrack is everything, you know, it's, it's, it's so, it's such a, well, Curtis's sound, what would you guys say about Curtis Mayfield and his sound and why it lent itself so beautifully to the black cinematic realm casey what 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 do you what what how do you feel about curtis mayfield as an artist i i I think he's beyond brilliant um and you know i've always loved his writing but i I think he he was it was it worked because for one you know he's from the hood he's from chicago and he just had a way of writing for himself yeah. and writing for all the people. That's what I felt like. He just, he was just really in tune with what the situation needed. Um, wow, yeah. that that's such a brilliant point, uh, Cross. Yeah, you know, and, and you, you mentioned uh, people get ready to win, because it's like, you got to go back to the impressions. I think like the impressions had that, you know, you know the impressions, and Dre, we talked about the impressions, like the impressions, they had that. And first of all, I thought it was so, dope that you could have a song where like all three guys are harmonizing in falsetto. <laughs> like, <laughs> the harmony is so high. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. It's like it's like whoa, but 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 they were able to do it. But the thing that's so crazy about it is Curtis's music like Stevie or Prince or like the the concept runs the gamut of the black experience. And in the black experience, in some ways, uh, you know, it's, it's exclusive to us. And then there are other themes in our in our experience that are universal. And it was like he was able to run the whole gamut, starting from back in the late '50s into the '60s with the impressions, you know. And then when he went to just being Curtis by himself, he just sonically went all the way where he probably always wanted to go or what he developed in what he developed into. And it just sonically sound like, you know, it, it sounds like there's a sophistication. There is a, there's an intellectualism there. You Come know on. what I'm saying? Right. But then it's palpable for the Caprini green, you know what I'm saying? And, you know, the, the hood in Detroit, you know, and then, one of the most notorious hoods we have, uh, we have a resident Harlemite here. Exactly. You know, Harlem, you That's know? Right. And, and Curtis Mayfield was the perfect person to speak about a movie that was about Harlem because he kind of had the universality of like what was happening in our inner cities or whatever. And that was perfect, man. Absolutely. Dre, uh, so Dre clowned me a little bit when I said that I had had never seen Superfly. It's a true story. I never have. Um, Dre, what what would you say is something that really stands out for you personally when you listen to the song Superfly or Freddie's Dead or, 
you know, one of those kind of songs, like, is it, is it, um, is it cinematic for you when you're listening? Like what comes up for you when you hear that record? I think it's, it's what everyone said. Um, I, I look at more of the lyrical content versus sonically how it sounds. I think he's probably, if not genius in multiple areas, definitely, you know, um, you know, extremely gifted. Mm-hmm. And so lyrically, I think, Right. So like Cross said, you have the impressions coming out of the late 50s by mid 60s. He had written people, you know, he wrote that record by like 60 something uh, in the mid 60s. By the time you get to Superfly, which is like 72. Yeah. It's really the extension of what's going on in 71. Right? Like I, I think I think it's, it's, it's a unbroken line. Absolutely. Right? So for me, uh, lyrically, it's almost a precursor, cross me better than, and probably KC to me, but of hip hop in terms of, um, because I know he's been doing a lot of studies on hip hop, but if you think about 72, that is kind of the early introduction to inner city music of having legendary performers talk about crime, poverty, drugs, Right, mm-hmm. like, 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 not in a Lucy in the sky with diamonds type of way, but, but really, what is the man on the street going through in mm. the urban areas throughout the states, and really connecting that everyday person struggle, and 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 really dig in. So I think you have what's going on where we're hearing about these things more in a, in a broader stroke, right? And I think Superfly really hones in, like he's in the crack house, you know what I mean? Like he's on the street. He's, you kind of, he paints that picture lyrically, like I was there when that needle was going in your arm type of feel. That, that's what I got from him. But I think, you, I don't know if you get one without the other, but I think that they're connected in beginning to tell the story um, um, from the inner city, through, through, through the lens of the inner city. So whether, like you said, it's Southside Chicago, I think he's from the North, but Southside Chicago, you know, inner cities of New York, you know, New Orleans, Detroit, you know, LA, he's telling those stories of, as though he's there, you know, he's not really asking what's going on. You get to feel like he was there while it was going on. Yes. You know? (laughs) know? Absolutely. I think those are brilliant points. And, And I think that the... The thing that Curtis was able to do within that kind of storytelling was not glorify it, but sort of, you know, be a real griot of the time, you know, without um, making it something alluring in a way that you, you know, not, not, it's alluring, but it's not promoting. And I think that there's a fine line for an artist to do that. Marvin Gaye, same thing. You brought up what's going on, which, you know, we celebrated the 50th anniversary of that album this year, you know, where, you know, it's it's not, when he sings Flying High in the Friendly Sky, it's not, um, you know, it's not glorifying the dope. It's, it's giving empathy and compassion to the addict, you know, really. Uh, Cross, any any thoughts on that? 
Yeah, no, that's a great point. I'm I'm loving this because you know I'm, y'all y'all are giving me some different perspective because I never thought about that the connectivity between that and what's going on, but it, it's perfectly true. You know, flying high in a friendly sky without leaving the ground, and then he's you know, and if you and if you know, uh, you know how sad tomorrows is the original flying high in the you know it, he really called it uh, sad tomorrows, and then at the end he says I did the best I could, nobody understood at the end of it, but by the time you get to, yeah, what's going on, he kind of rejudged it or whatever, but it has that that same message, right? Yes. But so the thing, the thing that really is interesting to me and listening to it is that song, Right On, you know, by him on, on what's going on. That, I always felt that there was a connection to the Curtis Mayfield sound with the, dun, 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 dun. you know, it was something about that. Yo, so you definitely, you definitely hitting on something with that. You know, and then I'll just throw in one more album to kind of connect those three. Absolutely. It could be, like be a trifecta. I know what you're going to say. There's a riot going on. Oh, absolutely. There's, absolutely. That's 71, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. When Sly made it, he made it as an answer to the question, what's going on? There's a riot going on. And then you got Curtis, you know, coming with that. That is... I need to sit down and listen to all those back to back now. <laughs> exactly. It's like a holy trinity uh, going on there. That's really just, it's unapologetic. It is raw. It is, again, it's, it's alluring, but it's not for, you know, uh, it's not for the white gaze. It's not for, um, it's not G-A-Z-E. It's not for, you know, to be romanticized or anything like that. Like it's really, uh, it's like the blues. It is truth telling, it is oral history through these ingenious, um, you know, lenses. And then, so Casey, you brought up Claudine and, you know, before we move off of Curtis Mayfield, cause we have so much to cover in a little bit of time, but, um, that soundtrack is so fantastic as well. And just like on Superfly, that Give Me Your Love and how, you know, Mary J. Blige samples it on My Life. You yeah. know, so many people have remade the makings of you and, and, you know, in our generation. So just talk to me a little bit about what it was when you first heard Claudine that was like, you know, cause that's such an incredible soundtrack featuring Gladys Knight and the Pips for everyone. Listening. Yeah, I mean that, you know, Gladys Knight is, is like, she's like one of my top three to five vocalists. So for, for some reason, every time I hear Gladys Knight, I think of my mom. If my wow. mom would sing, she would be Gladys Knight. Because Gladys sings with the, like with a, I will do anything for my kids kind of sound. I don't know what it, for some reason it always resonated in my mind. But Claudine, it just, The Makings of You is one of my favorite songs. I mean, the lyrics, the joy of children laughing around you. I mean, it's just, everything about that song is just pure genius. Um, so you have that and obviously just the the mute, the, the, the movie. Um, and I was just, at, while you guys were talking, I was thinking about it, I'm like, it's amazing how Curtis Mayfield and, 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 and Marvin Gaye were able to be political voices, but also be soundboards for romance and love. And they, they both worked. And it wasn't, they, they didn't conflict with each other. It, it all made sense. 
you know? And I think it was just, they were just so in tune with, you know, not, not to, you know, what's going on, no pun intended, you know what I mean? Right. That, that connection. Absolutely agree. That is such a great point. And then one, one other one other point. It's it's when when T.L. Cross said, uh, uh, "There's a riot going on." So then you have what's going. You have Marvin on the East Coast, Curtis in the Midwest, and then Sly on the West Coast. <laughs> oh my gosh! I never thought about it like that. Yeah, we had the whole thing covered. Absolutely. And so I wonder if we can. And you know, I just you know want to give you know, Curtis, his flowers, you know, he's no longer with us, obviously, but um, just give him all the flowers because he was such a brilliant musician along with the orchestrators that he worked with. Like, uh, uh, I think it was Johnny Pate did some of the orchestrations on uh, some of those records. And there are so many great under appreciated unsung black orchestrators that were yes. working in tandem with these artists that never get, it was Johnny Pate, um, who don't, who just don't get the credit that they deserve. So shout out to them, shout out to, you know, Phil Upchurch and, you know, just so many of the, the, the great rhythm section cats of that time, you know, who made the sound how it was. It just, it's Charles just- Stepney. Charles Stepney. Another- about, um, That's the way of the world. That, that, that um, 1976. That was, was a Harvey, Harvey Keitel who was the lead in that movie. Wow. That was a film? That was a film, 1976. Yes, 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 yes. I totally forgot about that one. <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah, I didn't know. I did a whole Charles Stepney episode for this podcast. And, I, and we talked about Earth, Wind and Fire and everything, but I did not know it was from a film. Shout out to, to another Chicago great, Charles Stepney. And shout out to, um, you know, Earth, Wind and Fire. Absolutely. Wow, wow, wow. Can I, can I interject one more person in that? Yo, the brother Isaac Hayes. I got to throw Isaac Hayes in there. Isaac Hayes! <laughs> you got to throw Isaac Hayes in there, man. Yo! 1,000. Now, he did win an Oscar. Did he not win an Oscar? He sure did. For now, Shaft. For Shaft. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he did, and he did quite a few. He did quite a few movies at that time, quite a few scores. When, when did Shaft come out? Does anybody know when was Shaft come out? So, uh, was it 71? 71. Oh, okay. Uh, there, there, there's some people who uh, uh, look at uh, Sweet Sweet Back's badass song, you know, as a, you know, a shout out to Earth, Wind, and Fire once again because they, they were the soundtrack for Sweet Sweet Back's badass song. Damn, we submit to that. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's Come so many. It. Come on no with doubt. it. Now, you know, the, you know, and then Shaft, you know, some people feel as though Shaft was really the uh the thing that kind of put the well, they say black exploitation film on the map in a big way. Yeah. Or whatever the case is. And then, you know, uh, Isaac, you know, doing that, you know, shout out to Gordon Parks, you know. And um, and then shout out to Gordon Park's son who did Superfly. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. And so since we're in this sort of 70s uh, thing, before we move on to the 80s, it feels like we're doing this in a chronological sort of way. So I'm feeling this vibe. So if we yeah. see this, so I'm gonna bring up a few soundtracks 
And if anything jumps out at you, I want you to just jump on in and, and say something. So Marvin Gaye and Trouble Man, Donny Hathaway and Comeback Charleston Blue, the Education of Sonny Carson, Leon Ware, uh, The Secret Life of Plants, Stevie Wonder. So the, the Leon Ware, I mean, I'm not, that, that's a movie that Leon Ware scored? Yeah, yeah. I didn't even know that. The Education I, of Sonny Carson, it is a gorgeous, I think that's where, it's a, that's a play on Lauren Hill's The Miseducation of Lauren Hill. I, I'm pretty sure she got it from, from that, but it's a fantastic under, appreciated, underutilized, you know, under everything, unsung score. Yeah, yeah I never heard of that, but I can only imagine, I mean, it's Leon Ware. I mean, <laughs> what can you really say? Exactly, exactly. Um, Comeback Charleston Blue, Quincy Jones, and, and, and Donny Hathaway, Cross? Yes, you know, I, I was gonna, I was gonna mention that, you know, I, I, I wrote that down, you know, Comeback Charleston Blue. I mean, first of all, can I just, we're talking about, you know, brilliant composers and people who were able to capture certain things. Let's just throw Donnie up in there just right quick. His sound, I mean, the ghetto, the slums, you know, um, there, there's a different get. When those guys talk about the ghetto, it's, it's literally like humanizing everything. It's like, you know, it, it, it's, it's from, you know, taking and saying those people or, or uh, whatever the case, they're, they're, they're humans, you know what I'm saying? We're human beings. And that's what that really did. It kind of gave the, the uh, empathetic and the sympathy in the I am, I am him and he is me and she is, you know, she is me, I am her. That kind of a vibe. But Donnie Hathaway and Quincy Jones getting together. I heard Quincy talk about that and he just talked about how, how brilliant Donnie was. And he just kind of let Donnie do certain things and he kind of chime in and jump in. And stuff, but that is a beautiful. My Donnie Hathaway is the was number one in my house, you know, with my dad, and I, I I heard that soundtrack back and forth, love it. I thought that was amazing. You mentioned you mentioned another one. Uh, Can you mention those again? Yeah. So it was oh, Trouble Man. Trouble Man. Trouble Man. Trouble Man. That that you know, and it's so funny because that is also kindred to Curtis Mayfield to me. You know, Absolutely. that Marvin, Marvin and Curtis, that, that that's a, you know, so thanks for that point, Dre. I mean, so it, it it's kind of like Trouble Man. And the funny thing about it is when he had done the What's Going On song and, you know, Barry Goy didn't, you know, notoriously didn't like it or whatever. And he was like, I'm about to start working on Trouble Man within the next few months. That's where my head is. You know what I'm saying? And when you just listen to that, I mean, um, T plays it cool. All of that stuff on there is like, yeah. it's so dope. You know, Cleo's apartment. It, those things, I, I listen to those like it is uh, uh, just 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 a Marvin Gaye album. You know, even just the instrumental stuff and stuff like that. Right. Um, Secret Life of Plants. You know, I gotta, I just gotta say, I always knew about it, but you, Angelica Bina, you introduced me to that soundtrack, you know, you, you, as they say, unpacked it more so, you know, for me and, you know, send one you love, you know, it's like, oh yeah, of course I know that soundtrack, send one you love, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but that soundtrack is amazing. I want to say uh, an RIP and a shout out and flowers to, to Sarita Wright, 
you know, uh, Stevie Wonder's Power Flower where he's singing in a falsetto. You don't get Stevie Wonder in a falsetto too often, you know. For the whole I song, mean, I bet. The whole song, you know, in just my love lives outside my window. All that this is amazing, you know, stuff. So you ask, does any of those soundtracks make the hairs on your next day? I think all of them did, you know, all that you just did. absolutely. Yeah. Dre, when was the first time you heard Secret Life of Plants? Because for me, I didn't hear it. So this comes out in 1979. It's literally a soundtrack about plants and the notion that plants have feelings. And, you know, it's this, and people coming off of, uh, no, Hotter Than July came after that, but coming off of, he had this uh, uh, three year hiatus between Songs in the Key of Life and this album, and then he, they come with this album and it's not well-received really. How did you feel about this album being, you know, you're a huge Stevie Wonder fan in looking at the sort of lineage and chronology of Stevie. And then there's this album that ends the decade that's arguably his most prolific. What does that soundtrack mean for you in the scheme of things? Um. It's it's probably so I have that album somewhere, but I didn't discover it until probably late high school, to be honest with you. So I just didn't know it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I think I had only heard Sin One Your Love, you know, maybe parents playing and a mom playing or some auntie, somebody, but I wasn't familiar with with how that album sounded. Um, but I also was not familiar with um as a younger person, you know, the albums that came before, like I wasn't a kid listening to like, you know, first fulfilling it, like, you know what I mean? Like I wasn't like all the way dialed in, right? Cause Stevie was making music in the eighties that was current to me that was still coming out. That's right. Like, it was on things that were happening then, amazing body of work happening then. So I wasn't rewinding. I think for me, two things stuck out about that album. Um, and probably may not answer the question, but the first thing that stuck out was how can you score film when you can't see the film? Oof. Right? Wow. So, so yeah. I, I was more interested in that, um, as well as the usage of later, of that synthetic sound, right, in 79, that really didn't exist in the way he was using it. Come right? on. Um, Come on. Um, but 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 I think what stood out to me more was the fact that, and I don't remember the guy, it was a guy that actually had to break down what was happening on the screen to Stevie in every single scene and moment. Oh, okay, okay. And then they they had somehow put the record, I mean like the audio from the scene from the film was really um like in like, I don't know if it's like a two track mix or whatever, but they left a lot of room for Stevie to just kind of do whatever he wanted, but every frame by frame had to be explained, right? Like, and anybody who's ever done any scoring or watched a film or directed a film, you realize that in order to really score it effectively, you almost have to see it. So there was someone that he worked with that if I'm not mistaken, broke down every single, okay, this is happening here. This is the, these are the movements. That's extremely challenging to do. And I think he took words from the actual 
was it a book or something or it was a book you're right it was a, 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 a book. to implement that into the soundtrack um it's probably one of the least bodies of work that i'm familiar with in terms of knowing the lyrical content of his stuff but but i remember just kind of like like being fascinated about that. Like I couldn't name anything past Sin When You Love in full honest, I mean, maybe a couple more. And I think like like, like Cross said, his wife collaborated on some things yeah. on that album. So, but to me, the score was like, that stuck out. Like, that's crazy. Well, exactly. And I, and I think that is so brilliant. And I, I never thought about that because, you know, you think about, um, you know, the Woman in Red soundtrack or uh, Jungle Fever, which which turned 30 this year. You know, you can wrap your head around a premise between the interaction between two human beings. You know, we've been in love before. We know the dynamics of so a lot of the themes that are in those other two movies. But to your point, this is a movie about plants. How do you, and you, like you said, and you you can't see outside of your mind's eye. So to be able to do that, I don't think I ever really thought of it in that context until you said it, just how how difficult that or challenging and brilliant he is. I just wanted to say just kind of because people think of soundtracks sometimes, it's placing songs that go with the content, but he actually was scoring the content. And so that, that was like mind boggling for me. Exactly, because exactly to your point, a score and a soundtrack are not mutually exclusive. Sometimes they can overlap, but they are two distinct things. And so I think that's an incredible point that you brought up. You also brought up this album, you know, some of the songs having sort of like a, the, a prototype of electronic music. Casey, um, what, where does Stevie fit in the lineage of sort of creating like dance music? You know, when you think about the synths and all that kind of stuff, like he's sort of a progenitor of all that stuff, isn't he? He absolutely is. Uh, you know, I uh, some years ago I read the uh, the Herbie Hancock uh, uh, Possibilities book. I'm not sure if you. Yeah. And he he talks about how himself, Herbie and Stevie had like this um, friendly kind of rivalry rivalry uh, competition about who has a, the latest keyboard, like, you know, they were always doing sort of, sort of things together. But between Herbie, in my opinion, between Herbie and Stevie, I mean, they are the, they are the founders of what we would call R&B keyboards. So wow. R&B, I don't know, harmony, if you want to say, I, I don't know how to phrase it, but those two guys, there was really nobody else in my opinion, who really sparked that sort of sound. And, you know, going into, you know, late 70s, it's a lot of disco and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And so I, I, I thought that was a really important point. I thought it was interesting that Dre brought that up and I just wanted to get your thoughts on that as well before we moved into the 80s. And Casey, I'm gonna stay with you on this one. So T.L. Cross is wearing a particular shirt from a particular movie soundtrack from a particular high school that we all graduated from. And I mean, I, I just wanted to pull this out. Oh, oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How's it going? Wow. <laughs> That's crazy. 
<laughs> and so, you know. Shout, shout, shout out to, to Mr. Moody. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I, was, I was in another basement. Another basement shout out, you know? Uh, yeah, basement. oh yeah, oh yeah. There's a lot of wonderful things going on in the basement at uh, at LaGuardia, for oh, yeah. sure, for sure. The drama department, the instrumental yeah. department, and I'm sure a few first kisses went down in the basement. So, uh, <laughs> at least. So, at, at least. <laughs> oh, the sub Uh-oh, oh! <laughs> Or no. <laughs> shout out to Carlos Enriquez, who was like, yo, what was up with the pool that never existed? Oh, my gosh. Remember oh, the pool? Yeah. <laughs> I'm about that. I was looking for that for the whole first semester. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh, gosh. So, Casey, you know, as we were talking about, um, you know, the 80s was really the era of the blockbuster film. You know what I mean? Uh, TL cross-referenced um, Top Gun. You know, we had, you know, Ghostbusters, Ray Parker Jr. and all of that kind of stuff. Um, what do you think the, in the creation, I think E.T. was probably like what we, what we would consider like the first blockbuster film, right? Um, and forgive me, all the film buffs who might be tuning in, don't write me in, to, you know, I, I'm not a film historian, okay? But as far as I know, that was probably what would be considered one of the biggest uh, block, the first big blockbusters. What opportunities do you think that created for for artists? Was it was how did, how does that fit together? You think? Do you think that that led to bigger opportunities for artists to get discovered, or you know, what, how does that all fit together? You think? Oh, absolutely. I think that the the this, the model of the soundtrack it just basically because it's you're using the momentum of the movie, so you have everybody who's focused on this big movie if it's a Spielberg movie or a, I don't know just naming any arbitrary you know Scorsese whatever right so you already have that audience so they're already tuned in and then you have lesser known artists that may be on the soundtrack and it's like oh wow you know so I've always thought that model was always really dope. I just remember you know being in high school you know and whatever movie was popular whatever black movie and it's like Man, I want I want to hear the soundtrack. Like, who's on the soundtrack? You know, who's who's somebody I haven't heard before? You know, exactly, exactly. You know that yeah. that that's a big part of it. Cross, what are your thoughts on that? Like, what did the blockbuster do? Two, four. How did it affect the music industry? Do you think? Like, how do you think those came together? Well, I'm gonna tell you. I think that uh, one of the things that may have opened the door to the concept that I want to talk about is Purple Rain, right? Because you, you have Prince and you, you know, he literally goes and just, I think he had the number one uh, 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 single, the number one uh, soundtrack, the number one movie, all at the same time. You know what mm -hmm. I'm saying? And this was like huge in Hollywood. But when you think about it, you know, you mentioned Ghostbusters, right? Ray Parker Jr. who comes out of Stevie Wonder's band, you know, and you have Ray, Ray Parker Jr. doing, this is a non-black film. But it's the black voice, you know, uh, that's 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 up front, right? I mean, I think about you know we come to black people or people of color, as they say. Um, uh, what a feeling, 
you know, I think about uh, what was it, Flash? Yeah, yeah, what a feeling, Irene Carroll. You know, we bringing it, we connecting it. Here we go, we got fame and all that stuff. Yeah, sure. <laughs> we connecting that. There became this thing where you started having these black voices, literally uh, up front, while it was a non-black movie, right? And then I think that that kind of started spilling over into the black soundtrack with the black movie or whatever that came after that. And to me, that's all the precursor to like the bodyguard, because by the time you get to the bodyguard, the, the biggest soundtrack of all time, here you have Whitney Houston. And I don't, I don't, we don't necessarily look at the bodyguard as like this black film per se, you know, right. Of course. right. but bodyguard, the, the, that black sound, you know, the, the, you know, the black voice, you know, uh, lending itself to the blockbuster. I'm talking about the blockbuster blockbuster, you know, the mainstream middle America blockbuster. That's right. Black experience brought there. And I think that's one of the shifts that may have happened. And after that, we started having these dope black soundtracks for black movies. You know what I'm saying? So we gonna, we gonna get, I know we're gonna get to that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna get to, that is such, that is such a brilliant and important point because to yeah. your point, if we're talking about all the 70s films that we just went through, those are largely either like B films or, you know, much, there were niche films for black, uh, the black, like you said, black exploitation or just, you know, that, that it was a niche audience. And then as we do as black people, we give this country its sound, its literal soundtrack, right? We are the cultural, at the cultural forefront. And uh, I think about um, the Pointer Sisters were big in that way, you know, where you have, yeah, you know, so we were all, that's, a, that is a game change. So yeah, Fame comes out in 1980 and uh, uh, Irene Cara, well, first of all, my favorite song on the Fame soundtrack was Out Here On My Own. Yeah. And I, don't laugh, but dogs in the yard. That was my joy. And body, uh, I, I sing the body electric. Okay. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, I want to bring up a soundtrack, Dre, um, that came out of the Motown camp in the 1980s. And this is The Last Dragon. Okay. So <laughs> I wanna I wanna ask you um what you know, ex exactly. So this is a very New York film. You know, it, it, um, it's a very Gordy produced. It's Time Mac and Vanity. Uh, it's 1984, five. five. Okay. 1985. I was off. Okay. 1985. Um, this, I think the, the movie obviously was a big deal for folks, you know, but the soundtrack too was, was, was really dope, you know? So can you talk to me a little bit about? Well, it's funny because um, I, I, I had a list of soundtracks that in my mind that I, I really liked that kind of shifted how I saw things. And for me, um, The Last Dragon, obviously being a kid growing up in Harlem, um, shout out to Mr. Moody again. You know? yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Grease, what was it? Move your pizza to Daddy Grease pizza. <laughs> deliver, deliver your pizza to Daddy Grease pizza. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone, I'm sorry. Dre, Dre, do you want to give that some context um, so that our listeners could know who Mr. Moody indeed is? 
so 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 um as 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 Casey you know so eloquently pointed out earlier you know uh, Mr. Moody was um, I believe if not the head one of the um, premier drama instructors at LaGuardia High School he had been around for you know before we got there and, and even even you know after as well and so he was also he played the father um, uh, in the movie The Last Dragon that's uh, right. The Last Dragon himself, you know, Bruce Leroy, you know, so, uh, um, and, and he owned the pizza parlor that was uh, eventually thrashed by the Shogun of Hall. <laughs> so, uh, so, so it, it, it was obviously interesting going to a school and then seeing someone who taught there who was also in a, um, a film that was a part of the culture, right? That's so, right. Um, that that was always interesting, and if you played in any role in that film, that was memorable. You know, of course, anybody would resonate to you. Um, but for me, um, Rhythm of the Night Ooh. by, by DeBarge uh, was to me the standout song, and I mean, I know many people know that's their only video that they ever um, had. That's right. Um, that's right. Mm-hmm. But but it was because it it sounded so urban, but so universal at the same time. Um, with with the steel pans, you know. But you had the feel of inner city flavor within that video, and, and then it also felt theatrical, right? Like like it, it felt like a like like a musical. You know, people yeah. were dancing in the streets, you know. Yeah. And, um, I think when you look back to 1984, um, I think 80, 85, right? But but if I could go back maybe a year prior, right? You had um, just kind of a really interesting time, right? I think 85 might be Crush Groove. Is that is that about right? Mm-hmm. 85 about right. Crush Groove. So you have this emergence of hip hop culture into... Um, first of all, you know, this is a Motown film. And, and so um, it had all of those cultural elements at the same token. It, I, I, don't, I don't know if it was a blockbuster, but definitely within our community, it felt like something was brewing, right? Vanity was going this way. And yep. um, like I said, the barge with that single, that, that was one of the largest singles within the community, um, at least that summer. So, you know, 84, you had 85, right? So 85, you're coming off of Marvin Gaye's passing, right? What yeah. was that, 85, if I'm not mistaken? Well, well, he oh, 84. 84. Yeah, but, he passed 84. But, but we were, we were. We were still, I feel like we were still. Coming we were, right off of that. And so, you know, it's just a different feel. So for me, um, that soundtrack, that, the, the barge joint, that I was like the, the, the blowout, the barge record. Um, that was heard everywhere. And so musically, that's the song that I took with me. Obviously, you know, you know, he's got the glow. You know, but you got the glow, you got the glow. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. record was the standout record for me. Oh, 100%. Casey? Yeah, I wanted to, 
when you guys are talking about, you know, people dancing in the street, which is a big theme in the eighties, a lot of movies. <laughs> I, I thought, uh, <laughs> it always, there was always a scene. There was some yeah, big dance. For no reason. Everybody. <laughs> hey, we're dancing. <laughs> it made, it made me think of this one movie and it's actually, I started playing the saxophone this year. Tap. Oh my goodness. Ooh. That was on my list. <laughs> Oh, and, I didn't um, that. That the, yeah. the, the song of Forever. Yes. That came, out, that came out in 88, I believe. That was the year I started playing saxophone. And my first solo in, in elementary school was a guitar solo. Wait, what? I played the guitar solo. That was my solo. On saxophone. <laughs> oh, On saxophone. my gosh. Oh, my wow. gosh. But I remember that movie and they had a scene where they're like dancing in the club or in the street or something in like streets, that. In know? the streets. In the streets, yeah. He, he, he said, all you gotta do is listen. Just listen to the sounds of yeah. the city. Exactly. <laughs> 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 you go, you, you hear that? You hear that? <laughs> that is funny. Listen, listen, shout out to Regina Bell in, uh -oh. in uh, JT Taylor, you know what I'm saying? With the with that forever, all I want is forever, man. That's a that's an underrated. Uh, and, 80s oh role. my gosh! Yeah. Am, am I asking too much? Asking <laughs> for all your love. Come on. Right. <laughs> <laughs> all your love forever. <laughs> exactly. And shout out to the incomparable Gregory Hines. I mean, whether it was Tap or Running Scared or you know he Running was man. And 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 I think about the duet that he did with Luther. Um, I, I want to. Was that for a film? Was that for? It, it, it feels. It feels like it was, but um, there's nothing oh. better than love. Well, while we're talking about Luther, and I know this isn't a black film, but um, he did a huge song for what was the movie with Danny DeVito um in the eighties? You're talking about. Give me the reason. Give me the reason. Um, give me the reason to. Uh, um, the song was um um Water Roses. War the Roses, give me the reason. Give me the reason. That's War. another one that makes your point. That's another one to add to that point you were making earlier, Cross, about yeah. you know black voices carrying these white you know films, so you know, so to speak. Ooh. Beverly Hills Cop Ooh. would yeah. be considered a blockbuster film, and if I'm not mistaken, um, you got Patti LaBelle, New Attitude, right? Like. Ooh, 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 ooh. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, right, right, exactly. But well, didn't that, she have that other song? Dun, 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 dun. I think yeah, that might have been Beverly Hills Cop 2. Oh, okay. I, okay. I could be wrong, I could be wrong. I, I Her, Her, Herbie's on there too. That's on the soundtrack as well. And the Point of Sisters Neutron Dance, got throw that in there. Oh, that's yeah. right. Right, right, so so that, what I know that was a blockbuster film. <laughs> and, and that had, it sounded when you heard, even though they were in Beverly Hills, they weren't, you know, in the it wasn't in Detroit the whole movie, but it felt urban to me. And I think those those songs on the soundtrack kind of aided to that feel. So even though we're watching Beverly Hills, it feels like that's somebody auntie in the kitchen singing, that's somebody's, you know, exactly. mom or pops or whatever. It had an urban feel. Absolutely. You know, I think, I think we're hitting on something because at the same time that these black voices were doing the song in the music, 
when you look at Eddie Murphy, before Eddie Murphy kind of um, took off and kind of created his own thing, talking about that coming to America era, uh, Harlem Nights, start doing what he wanted to do, doing the all black film. Eddie was being casted in white films, but the black lead. And when you think about it, that's the same thing that was happening with the music. There was a parallel. Whoopi Goldberg with Jumping Jack Flash and all these movies that she was in, these were actually really, when you think about it, white films and they were just kind of bringing that black flavor to front it. You know what I'm saying? And at the right. same time, go get the black person to sing the song. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right, <laughs> grab a like, while you at it. Yeah, right, yeah. Yeah, right. Grab a do jump it. Could, you think Aretha can sing Jumping Jack Flash? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, Are you guys so friends? It, you know, you know each other. <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> you know, Aretha. You know, uh, but I think there was a parallel thing happening. The black uh, singer, you know, uh, uh, putting the musical uh, face in, in flavor on the soundtrack, and then the black face putting that flavor on. Because Dre just mentioned, you know, uh, uh, it felt urban that yeah. came through the music, but it also came from Eddie Murphy, who's a New York guy. You know, you know, right out of Brooklyn, That's Long that. Island that was adding that flavor too. And it was like, they were they were looking for that flavor. And that's what that's what was happening. But Eddie went, shout out to Eddie Murphy. Eddie went and said, you know what? I'm gonna start creating my own characters, doing my own thing. And he did his trilogy that I look at as a trilogy, which was Coming to America, Harlem Nights and Boomerang. And oh, we'll, I'm sure we'll get to the Boomerang soundtrack at some point. Yeah. Hey. Okay, so we cannot leave the 80s without talking about someone who I actually want to get all of your input on uh, and that is the great Spike Lee. Spike Lee has his canon of work has probably been one of the foremost influential things period of our lifetime but the music in the film I mean you can't you almost can't uh, separate them. Uh, so I want to ask each of you, beginning with you, Dre, what impact Spike Lee's film soundtracks have and will have from this point forward? Wow, that, that, that's, a, uh, that's a great question, um, kind of two-part. I'd say... Um, I can answer it just kind of all around. One, I think he, uh, something that I've, I've adopted recently um, that, that I kind of got from him, right, is that he would take an urban setting of something, right, of a film taking place in the inner city, but then parallel that with a sophisticated score soundtrack you know you mentioned terrence you mentioned right right so that that is music that you probably would not hear on every street corner but it's it's cleverly woven into the fabric of the film you know and, mm -hmm. and so you're actually getting two different pieces of work that you normally wouldn't hear together um so you can cut the film off and listen to the music and it, it moves a certain way you can cut the music off and listen to the film or watch the film and, and feel a certain thing. Um, and those two things, whether it was like implementing jazz chords and progressions over, you know, guys on, 
coming out of the bodega, just walking down the street. He was able to mash those things together in such a way that it never felt like two separate things. Mm, yeah. As one. So to, to me, that's probably my biggest takeaway in a lot of his ability to connect the culture to a genre of music that might not be at the centerpiece of what the everyday young person is listening to. Um, I think when we look at the late 80s, you, you kind of move into that era of Spike that's right, you kind of got do the right thing. Um, and, and from a soundtrack perspective, um, it really just touched on a lot of what was happening at that, at that time in New York City. So from a legacy standpoint, I, I don't think any director spoke to the people through the lens of cinema the way Spike did during that era, right? So when you, even when you hear the, the public enemies, right? Or even when you, and you see the videos that accompany those, those pieces, those pieces directly spoke to that time, right? Yeah. You from 89, Century Park Jogger Kicks, right? Not too far from Tawana Brawley, Vincent Hurst. Like all these things are kind of brewing in the same exact moment of time. Mm-hmm. And he very cleverly is unpacking those feelings that the inner cities of throughout the country are feeling, but particularly with a hyper focus around New York City, right? Because you kind of got that feel and, and do the right thing. You knew they were in New York. Um, and I think that, that that's probably the biggest thing. He spoke to the people, like we mentioned, the Marvins and the Curtis, during the time of which it was happening. And, and he didn't do it in a, in, a, in a preachy way. You know, he did it through through his art form, you know, uh, with his film. And, and the music to me was not second to that. It didn't seem like we shot the film and then, you know, let's just kind of add some stuff to, to kind of get it out. Yes. Um, which a lot of directors do, particularly with urban film, right? Let's just kind of, right? Put some yeah. hip hop on it. That's an easy thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but I think he went a lot further. And I think there probably was that thought before the film began to be filmed. Like this is, you see those moments where Spike has like, people like on the, like floating forward on, you know, and- Double dolly joint, yeah. Dolly, yeah. I didn't want to say, I didn't know who, yeah, yeah, those, those dolly shots. Um, and he does that, but usually the music is doing something as well. Like we talk about the, the actual shot, but what's being played during those moments that that's evoking that emotion that has you on the edge of your seat, like, oh. So I, yeah, I think that you you have, the points that you're making are so profound. You know, you brought up uh, Public Enemy. I'm going to tell you something. It's rare that I can hear "Fight the Power" without tearing up. It's rare. Like it, I mean, it just from from that like that beginning. Mm-hmm. By the time that beat drops, I mean it's spiritual. By that point, that is that is one of the most spiritual songs mm-hmm. in my Rolodex of music, and it's hip hop, is gritty. But to your point, the way that Spike synthesizes his story and the music and the way that they are married, I can't think about fight the power without thinking about, you know, Radio Raheem. I can't think about fight the power without thinking about Malcolm X or 
all the people on the wall or MLK and you know, I can't think about, I can't hear that song and the power of that song. And just, it's just a badass track, but anyway, you know, but I can't think about any of, I can't listen to that without thinking about all of those things. So that's a great point that you made. Another thing that you mentioned, and I want you to, uh, Casey, give me some input here as well, because Dre was saying that the way Spike would center, basically what he was getting at was jazz. He would center jazz in these films that were very, very popular, you know what I mean? But he was centering a music that, you know, in the eighties and like, like we were all saying, coming off of blockbusters, coming off of, you know, this very pop sound and here comes Spike and he's implored his dad, you know, to, to do, you know, this kind of music, the music we call jazz. And it, it's so fitting. Why do you think just, to, I would, I would love to get your input on that part of Spike's artistry and the way that jazz uh, influences his films. Mo Better Blues is probably like, for me, the, I don't know if because it, it speaks to me because of where I was in my life at that time and me getting my feet wet with, with, with jazz and, you know, that sort of thing. But I just think it was so brilliant because it, it seemed like it fit. We're, we're talking now, we're talking, it came out in 1990, right? So yeah. this is probably a little bit before the Young Lions, you know, like the Joshua Redman, Joshua Redman and all that. That's like- Christian mid, McBride. Christian McBride, yeah, Kenny Garrett. That's like, well, Kenny was a little older than them, but like, yeah. that's like mid nineties or whatever. Yeah. I just, I thought it was interesting how that it made sense, you know, it, it fit, even though Obviously, jazz wasn't the most popular music. And um, I don't know, man, like it was, you know, I'm a saxophone player and Shadowhead, I wanted to be Shadow Henderson. Who was like, <laughs> going, oh, can we curse? I don't know. If it's yes, yes. Okay. French, we, we can, yes. <laughs> he was the coolest motherfucker ever. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. And like, I wanted to be him. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just the music was amazing and Terrence and Branford and Whitney. Now, okay, so now is this urban myth? Okay, I need you to help me dispel this. So my understanding is the tune is that Winton? Because everybody says everything else was Terrence and there's always been this like urban myth and it's not even credited on cross jumping if you know. Is that Winton on that tune? That's the burnout tune, right? Yes. That's when I was I was thinking it was was it you talking about the um um that's um that's say hey. That's say hey, right? The burnout tune, I can't remember. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's Winton. That's Winton. That's Winton. So he's not credited on the album either, because I remember on the is he? Like, I don't see his name. I'm not, I, I have to look at that. I'm not sure. I never even checked that out. I just yeah. assumed that he was. Yeah, I don't think he is. And, I, and I'm like, I think it's Winton. And like, you know, my, my trumpet ears are pretty good, but I'm like, but he's not credited here, you know? And so, okay. So, and like you said, so the Mo Better Blue soundtrack, it's the Branford Marcellus Quartet featuring Terrence Blanchard. Shout out to Branford and Tane. 
and uh, my man Bob Hurst and, and, and the late great Kenny Kirkland, left hand Lacey. <laughs> so, Queens mean, from Queens. No doubt, no doubt. Oh, <laughs> all yeah. right. Yeah. I did that. Kenny Kirkland's from Queens. From Queens. I didn't know that. And so, yeah, so with, with that soundtrack, first of all, for Spike to do a film about jazz at the top of the 90s, you know, to center it around, you know, a, a musician and, you know, his life and the band and the things that go, the inter, the, the things that go on in the band and all that kind of stuff, I thought was really bold and daring and just beautiful because we need that, you know, we, there was, there was very little representation of that. You know, you had Lady Sings of Blues, Round Midnight, a couple of films that, you know, but that was like, it was, I think it was because it was a drama, because there was a love story there, mm -hmm. you know. Um, it, sp it, spoke, it spoke to the younger generation, I feel. Exactly. You know, as opposed to like Round Midnight and that was more, you know. Exactly, you know, and if we even go further back to like the She's Gotta Have It soundtrack, you know, with Bill Lee, we got, you know, Stanley Cowell and Cedar Walton and, and you know, all those cats, Kenny Washington, Same you know, time. so he was always putting the music and the, the cats, the important players, you know, in the center, whether it was a movie that was about jazz, quote unquote, or, you know, not, you know what I mean? I think about um, just, you know, his whole canon, I feel like there was always that thread and probably because Terrence was at the center of, of all of that. So there was that distinct sound. Cross, um, you know, whether, first of all, do you have a particular favorite Spike Lee soundtrack? And if you do, and I know that's like a really tough question, but if you do, I wonder if you could share what that is and why, and then I, I have a follow-up question for you, but let's just start there. <clears throat> wow, 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 wow. Okay, so there's a lot of them that I like. I mean, I like them all, you know. Um, I would have to go with Mo Better Blues. Mm. I'd have to go with Mo Better Blues. Well, oh, wait a minute. Aha! <laughs> 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 I just thought about Jungle Fever. Hey! I thought about Jungle Fever. Yeah. Stevie Wonder. You know, I think we were saying this one time. I said, you know, this is Stevie Wonder's um, crack era album. This is his <laughs> crack era album. This exactly. is crack era album. Where he literally, I mean, you got from chemical love to that, that's what was happening. It was, a, it was, a, you know, pandemic or whatever the case may be. So, you know, I, you know, Mo Better Blues, okay, put it to this way. Mo Better Blues is in one part of my brain, my mm -hmm. favorite. In Jungle Fever, in another part of my brain is my favorite, <laughs> you know. But but I, I I just have to say, I just have to throw in there. Later on, he did a movie, Bamboozled. Oh, Bamboozled soundtrack. I mean, from from the Stevie on there, you know, um, 14th Century, you know, you know, you yes! can afford, you know, 1492, educated by the Moors. Like that was we are the the, the um miss uh, what is it the misrepresented people that's the name of the song you had um uh, Erica Badu he's on his way to Hollywood <laughs> to Hollywood <laughs> you had the Mal Mal's was on. <laughs> wow. black is black <laughs> black is black yo black is black. 
Yes. So we also had before you before you say I just want to interject. Um, my, one of my favorite songs on that soundtrack is Bruce Hornsby's uh, Shadowlands. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Bah, 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 bah. Oh my gosh, that was amazing. Shadowlands was just really. And then at the end of the movie, when they're showing like the turn of the century kind of uh, a caricaturesque, uh, you know, you know, figurine, you know, and they're showing those and they're playing that song, you know, and you're just looking at that. That right there is enough to bring you to tears. Absolutely. Just looking at that right there, you mm. know? And I want to throw in there right quick. And me, me and Dre, we've spoken extensively about this because we're, we're, we're like, and I know everybody on here is, but we love Sam Cooke, right? And we would, we'll just talk about Sam yeah, we'll, we'll just talk, we'll just, we'll just get on the phone and start and, and talk about Sam for an hour. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, and his influence. But Sam, you know, posthumously, you know, released A Change Is Gonna Come, which was, you know, it, you know, it did, his, it did his thing at the time. But if you ask people today, name a Sam Cooke song, one of the first songs that come to their mind is A Change Is Gonna Come. That wasn't always the case. Mm. Malcolm X had a lot to do with that. Mm -hmm. You know, for a generation of people who uh, identify Sam Cooke with that song, mm -hmm. because before that, more people would, would would identify him with "You Send Me," you know, specifically maybe Cupid or whatever the case may be. But there was something that was there was something that resonated with the with a whole generation when it came to that scene of Malcolm X going to the Audubon Ballroom and the changes are gonna come. That literally, it, that song literally went back on the charts at that time <laughs> you know wow. you yeah. know so so you know shout out to spike you know shout out to bill lee as well oh my little acorn kenny Barron, shout out kenny Barron. and, and yeah, speaking, uh, speaking of that cross so you behind you you've got a mission college shirt Right. I'm just going to ease on out the way for a second. Let y'all see this right here. <laughs> you know what, I'm what I'm saying is, I'm building me a home. That's what, I, that's what I'm <laughs> Building me a home. Yeah. Yeah. Shout, out, shout out to Morehouse College, you know. Uh, exactly. The, the chorus, you know, who, who, who sing that, you know. But yeah, you know, so, this mission. Yes, yeah, so I, I wanted to ask you. So you, you've, you clearly got your school days you know, apparel popping, you know, you, you got it on deck. Mm -hmm. um, I want to talk to you about the School Day soundtrack because I feel like that's one that gets a little swept under the rug. I mean, and, and I think a lot of people don't even know that there's a very big hit on that soundtrack that people don't associate with School Days. It has to do with thy derrieres. But um, <laughs> but um, talk to me about the importance of that soundtrack because I feel like that is one of his greats that just doesn't get talked about a lot. Can you unpack some of the importance of that particular soundtrack? Absolutely. You know, I have that on vinyl. I wish I had it readily available. I'd run because my my records are right there. But you know, let me just let me start with. The butt, because you can't say, you can't say, you can't say the butt. You, can, you can't say the butt. No. If you say the butt, get out. <laughs> exactly. right? It is the butt. Come on. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> the butt. Listen, shout out, you know, because, you know, cause we, we had Harlem in here pretty early with the with the shaft and all, you know, and the sewer fly. 
You know, we talking about spikes. We got Brooklyn in the house. Shout out to the homie Marcus Miller. Come on, <laughs> you know, please. For doing <laughs> the butt. Shout out the Queens. You know, and I just, uh, oh man, that was a thing. Like, like first of all, that song. Not only was it a big song in the soundtrack, but it was literally a thing. It was an event. Like, if you put that on at a party, an event is about to take place. <laughs> today, if you do that right today, now. right now. Yeah. Yes. On, on, on this day. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but I also, just to, you know, just to kind of Stevie's connection to the School Days soundtrack with I Can Only Be Me. Come on. You know, it, let me tell on. you, come on now. Let me tell you, I was watching that movie and I was in the movie theater. Um, and if you remember, he's singing, Keith John, he's singing, but they're doing cutaways and, you know, you're, you know, you're seeing other stuff. And I would watch him sing, but then when they would cut away, I would say, but wait a minute, I think that's Stevie Wonder though. <laughs> and then they would go back to the guy and I was like, no, that's not Stevie Wonder. You know, and then of course, you know, later on I found out that he's one of the great uh, uh, collaborators, you know, live, you know, with Stevie Wonder vocally right there on stage with him. You and I went to a Stevie Wonder concert one time and he killed it. He did yes. Keith, shout, out to, shout Keith. out to Keith John, man. Shout out to Keith John, yes. uh, you know, and then you have that, it, I don't remember the name of the song, uh -huh. but the song where she's licking his part, don't, don't, don't. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, I always thought that was the most disgusting. I was like, she probably got all kind of dandruff in her mouth now. <laughs> like, I didn't find that very sexy. I'm sorry. Right, right, right. Now, that, you know, it went left quick. It went you know? a little left, right. <laughs> but, you know, I have to say, listen, let's take some time out to, to pay homage to the beautiful Phyllis Hyman. Oh, you know, wow. The, the, the lovely Phyllis Hyman, you know, who was in that film, you know, looking amazing, regal, looking like a queen. You know, she was, yeah, she actually had that, you know, people would identify that hat maybe with Queen Latifah a little yeah. bit later. But, you know, here we have, here we have Phyllis Hyman, you know, just, um, some years, you know, before before her untimely passing, taking a moment in that movie. And I thought, you know, it, it, we should talk about that just for a second. The fact that here you have young people in this movie, you know, they just got finished doing double, the the right? <laughs> and there, this was a time where they were still having a slow jam at parties and stuff and then you have the coming together the holding one another of young people you know of 18 year olds and 19 year olds or whatever in having that closeness that intimacy that's not not sexual intimacy but you know a, a, a charming you know um intimacy you know so i just want to point out the fact that that was a really really powerful moment you know, in that movie. When I was a young, I said, let's get past this part. Everything is slow right here. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but I got older and, you know, when I became a man, I threw away childish things. Right. You know, <laughs> so I, I I really appreciate that, you know, today. You yeah. know, and I just want to add one thing. When we did our first show, I was in a group called Lade, of course. And we did a show 
And shout know, out yeah. to La Day, man. Shout out to La Day, man. <laughs> but yo, Tom, I'm sorry, TL Cross. I just gotta, I gotta throw something in real quick. Don't forget that thought. But you know, I just want to say when that was going on, we were so proud, man. We were so proud. You, yes, yes. Dre's got the La Day. Wow. You know, I still have my sticker. You know, I still have my merch from you know the the Motown merch they did for you guys. You know, you were you were the, the the hometown hero, man. Like that, like you were one of the first in our school to, you know, make us feel like that fame shit was real. You know what I mean? Like that, like like it, that it could happen. So just like shout out to you, shout out to to Brian and Darren and Quentin and the whole Lade crew, and um, you know, because that that, that 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 meant a lot to us. I, I I just had to say that. I just had to throw that in there. Wow. Wow, you know what? And it's so funny because now I I can I can I hear what you're saying. At the time, it was just like you're so young until you 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 don't put things in perspective until later. A lot of times, you know. Yeah. And you know, I always felt like when I came back, if I went on, you know, did something, and I came back, you know, I felt like you all would always you would embrace me like yo man we were talking about you and you know yeah how did it go you know and those that felt good like for a young guy like that i needed that because we all know that in the music industry it's 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 tough you know for a young it's tough for a a grown-ass man and a grown-ass woman you know that's right it's very tough for a young person and that meant a lot to me to have that support from my friends you know, mm-hmm. that meant everything to me. I would sometimes be on the road doing stuff and all I could think about is getting back to y'all and tell y'all some funny stuff that I just now saw. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. We did a show once and it was our very, uh, our second show, the second show we ever did as a group. It was a talent show. It was literally a talent show. We didn't have no record deal, nothing. We just, you know, we're just kids joining a talent show. And that talent show is the All-Star Talent Show Network, which would, it would happen all around New York City. And they would have special guests. And the special guest was Phyllis Hyman. That was the special guest. And she, I, I have pictures, she had a beautiful white outfit on with a beautiful big white hat on. And um, I, we sat there, you know, after we performed and she closed the show. And I sat there with my parents and I watched Phyllis Hyman perform. And you know, she was she was only with us for a couple more years, very, very short period of time. She was still with us. But I just wanted to, you know, put that out there. That's my memory of Phyllis Hyman and that connection that I feel to school days and its music. Yeah, wow, 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 wow. Yeah, she was one of a kind and uh just a, a very rare special talent. And um I just wish that she, you know, had I wish things had gone a different way. And I wish that, um, you know, last month was mental health, mental wellness awareness, what mental health awareness month. And I just um, see all the strides that we're making now with the destigmatization of mental health and wish that that was going on, you know, sooner. At that time, yeah. Yeah, save more lives, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, with Spike, you brought up Bamboozled, you know, we covered Mo Better, all these things. You know, there's a soundtrack that kind of 
I don't know. I don't think a lot of people think about this one, but the Clockers soundtrack. Do, are y'all familiar with that? There's there's two songs on there that I love. Shaka Khan's Love Me Still. And yes! Right? Yes. It's just her and I think it's Bruce Hornsby, actually. I think it's just Duet. Yes. There's two versions. One is just her and Duet. Yep, just Duet. And the other one has a fuller thing. And then there's... um this song by this this cat named Mark Dorsey. I don't know him from anywhere other than, oh, you know, oh, who is that? Mark Dorsey is a, who is a hell of a singer, a hell of a vocalist. He, he actually really, did People Make the World Go Round that we spoke about earlier today. He remade People Make the World Go Round. Um, maybe for that, actually, maybe he remade it for uh, that Clockers you know, era. But Dorsey, yes, he was a huge, Donny Hathaway fan. I think he did even he even did a Donny uh, remake. But Dorsey was signed to Spike Lee's 40 Acres and a Mule music at the time. What? <laughs> ah, okay. I Dorsey didn't was Dorsey was his artist. It was his artist. Dorsey was his artist. I ne- first of all, I never knew there was a 40 Acres and a Mule music. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So Mark Dorsey does this tune called People in Search of a Life on the Clocker soundtrack. It's gorgeous. It's so, so, so beautiful. And, you know, Casey, I just want to ask you real quick, because I, I, when we were talking about Mo Bitter Blues, I just want to circle back real quick to ask you about, you know, there's two people that you can really associate with, with Spike, three, with Spike's um, film's sounds. And that's Bill Lee, of course, uh, Terrence and Branford. I would think are like the main ones because you hear you hear Branford throughout. In fact, on the on the school day soundtrack on that song, um, I don't wanna be alone tonight. You know, you hear you hear Branford soprano at the beginning of that song, you know, and throughout. So just what do you think it was about Terrence and Branford that made that their signature sound right for film? I like to think it was probably just like a perfect storm because again, you had, um, they were making their way up in the rank, you know, Branford had just been touring with Sting. So he was doing a lot of pop stuff along with doing, and then later on around that time, you got the Tonight Show. Then you had, you know, you had, uh, even though Winton's not an integral part, a big integral part of Mobile, but you had Winton and he had Lincoln Center and then Terrence doing his thing. So I think it was just him wanting to just really celebrate black excellence because at that time mm-hmm. there was yeah. really nobody who was really pushing it. And it, it was like all the roads were meeting together, like film and music and like everything was just, it was just a perfect storm, I think. That makes so yeah. much sense. And, and, makes- the, and, the, and the act, you know, Wesley Snipes and, and um, Halle Berry and all of them, they were just getting their feet wet, you know, Samuel Jackson. So it was just like a perfect storm, I think. Perfect storm. Shout out to the the tune. What is the tune I'm thinking of? I uh, uh, uh oh boy, I can't believe it's escaping me. But Terrence's tune that Spike used in like every uh uh Oh, I have no idea. The Wado song. The Wado song. The Wado song. There we go. That was like Spike heard that. It was like I'm putting this in every one of these. What was the name of what? There's a song. I think it's on the Jungle Fever soundtrack. 
the song that Al Jarreau is singing. It's at the end. It's in the credits. Oh. That's a good one. I got to go back and check. Um, this, yeah. The End of Jungle Fever soundtrack is actually uh, Stevie Wonder's Feeding Off the Love of the Land. Okay. But it, it, is it was it Do the Right Thing that Al Jarreau was on? Al Jarreau was on Do the Right Thing. So was Public Enemy. So was Guy. Okay, so was Do But I don't know if this is the same song, but I know I think Al Jarreau had a song on Do the Right Thing. Yeah, I'm pretty that was sure. Only, I know I had that soundtrack in the house. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna look into. You remember the name of it, or you don't remember I, the name? Nah, I don't remember the name. I could uh, search. So okay. I yeah, I, I want to see what that is. And and speaking of songs in the in the end credits, that feeding off the love of the land, cross you and I were on a mission with that song. Do you remember? Oh my God, absolutely. Because never explain love. Sorry. <laughs> never explain love. Okay. That okay. I'm I'm a peep that. No, I'm a peep that. Look that up. That, but that that feeding off the land. I remember. You know, you the way the way you were mentioning it, you were you were you recognized that that was seventies, but because because okay, let's just get it out there, y'all. You know, me, Angelica, and Dre, we were vocal majors, okay? <laughs> we were not sang on, you know. <laughs> I, I, I was cafeteria in the hallway. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, listen, listen, y'all. Your man Casey Benjamin was getting his Mo Better Blues on at 15. Okay. He walking, okay. He was walking through the hallway like shadow all day. You know. Do you day. remember Gospel Chorus, Gospel Choir Chorus Choir <laughs> concert when Casey did a solo on um I will make the darkness light before the No, I was Casey in that chorus. Going, huh? I was in that chorus. I was too. <laughs> I was in the alto section. That re Mr. Reberg was directly, yeah. right? Yes. Yeah. Me resting. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You know. Man, um, good times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you and know, therefore I he is God. <laughs> <laughs> Let Nimrod. <laughs> <laughs> the mighty hunter. You know what I'm saying? I'm here with that ass. Okay. Right. <laughs> Let, but, ah. but can I, but can I find hilarious, y'all? There's no way to go back from that. Having a moment. I know, like, I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. All these different pieces are popping up into my head now. Um, so you were saying we were vocal majors. We were vocal majors. And so Angelica and I, we were talking about, you know, Stevie's evolution over time, you know, his vocal range, what he was doing in the 70s, as opposed to what he was doing in the 80s and 90s. And you know, you brought up the fact that that sounds like '70s Stevie. Yeah. Trying to figure out, you know, what is what, and you know, what era it was from, and come to find out, yeah, that was him, uh, '70s Stevie. Yeah, that was like fulfilling this first finale, Stevie singing this song called "Feeding Off the Love of the Land." He donates this song to George Harrison for a a, a, a tribute album, a, a, a Romanian relief album I believe but Bill Lee puts his strings on it in the 90s and it becomes this song that is at the end of Jungle Fever but I think it couldn't go on the soundtrack because of licensing issues with the George Harrison issue so you know that that was that but yeah I mean Spike Lee is just the, 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 those soundtracks just really just just to round him out I mean, we could we could do a whole podcast episode, you know. 
Yeah, no, and, and just just to to piggyback, I just want to say something y'all mentioned earlier. I wanted to just say that <clears throat> the way that Spike took jazz, hip hop, various styles and brought them, I think Dre brought up the fact that, you know, you may be in Bed-Stuy somewhere, but you may be hearing, you know, some jazz or something that may not necessarily be booming in the car in Bed-Stuy per se, they may be booming some hip hop. But I think that that just, I love that because I think that speaks to how multifaceted uh, and how compartmentalized black, the black experience is. The black experience is not one thing. You know, in the same neighborhood, you know, we were in LaGuardia, at, you know, you had Casey right there who could run down everything jazz right there and you, Angelica. And then, you know, you had Dre who was coming out of that theater, who was coming out of doing the live performances. He could run down. He told me about guys and dolls and stuff like that. I didn't know about that, mm -hmm. you know, and then I'm coming out of the church doing the gospel stuff. And then we're all listening to the radio and then we got hip hop in the community, you know. So when you think about it, everybody that's walking down the block in any given black neighborhood, there is a different kind of music going through their mind. There Absolutely. is a different experience that they're all having. And Spike grew up with a jazz musician father. So walking down the streets of Fort Greene, he was hearing those jazz uh, uh, compositions in his head. So he's beautifying that area. He is creating a, a, a visual, tying it with music as to how that neighborhood sounds to him. He's showing us what it looks like, but he's also given what that soundtrack is for him. So I think it kind of brings us into that whole kind of African, uh, uh, you know, concept of there's no, you know, everything's connected. Wow. Everything's connected. And I think that's what he kind of did with that music. Wow. Beautiful point. Beautiful, beautiful point. And so we are all, again, we, we all met at the top of the 90s. We met in around you know, 92, you know, one year later, peace out for me and come be out with the beta. No. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> so I want to talk about the 90s. I think that would be a great sort of way to bookend this episode, you know, um, and not that we can't go past the 90s, but I think it would be important to just like talk about the impact of the Black soundtrack in the 1990s. This concludes part one of our very special soundtracks episode of Milestones as I celebrate the milestone of 1996, class of 1996, with my LaGuardia comrades, Casey Benjamin, T.L. Cross, Drago Moore. If you've been enjoying what you're listening to, you don't want to miss part two. We're delving into the 90s and the golden era of soundtracks um, that were the sweet spot of our generation. So check out part two. It's available now. Thank you so much for tuning in and joining us. We will see you next time. <laughs>